The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. Good evening and welcome to the Buddhist Society of Victoria's Monday night meditation together. And uh, this is Ajahn Nisarano. Uh, and the format, as usual, for this evening will be um, an introduction, a meditation, guided meditation, a bell, and then the uh, comments, questions, or complaints. And we are live streaming this, I should have mentioned, from Newbury Buddhist Monastery outside Melbourne in Victoria, for those that are listening um, in other places in the world. So this evening, I'd like to just... Uh, introduce the meditation. Usually we have about 15 or 20 minutes introducing the meditation. So I'd just like to give the background to this. And uh, each Friday uh, evening we uh, we play a Dhamma talk, by a recent Dhamma talk by Ajahn Brahm here at the Monks Vihara. This is the, the new buildings and the new buildings in the area for the monks um, at Newbury Buddhist Monastery. And uh, the talk that we play is usually one he's given to the Sangha and the and those that are staying at his monastery in Western Australia. And last Friday night he gave a wonderful talk that, that he actually gave, he actually gave on the thirtieth of November, so it was just before New Year's Eve, so it's recent, entitled Giving Freely, Giving Freely. And it was really, uh, as I say, uplifting and inspiring talk. But towards the end of the talk, Ajahn mentions that uh, when he some, sometimes when he's, uh, uh, he's doing his meditation or before he starts his meditation, he gives, uh, he offers his meditation as a gift to the Buddha or to his teacher, Ajahn Chah, and that that gives rise to uh, joy or gratitude or, and inspiration. So... And that really struck a chord for me. I thought, isn't that lovely? That's a really powerful way to bring happiness, to empower our meditation. Because this is a very important ingredient, not only for our meditation, of course, but it's for our life as well. And it reminded me, his talk reminded me of a, a, a chant that's very common in Buddhist countries. You, you hear it for, um, in uh, quite often which I like a lot, and, and it's very um, energizing. So I just chant it in the Pali and then give you the English translation. And it's, Imaya Dhamma Nudhamma Patipatiya Buddhang Puchemi Imaya Dhamma Nudhamma Patipatiya Dhammang Puchemi Imaya Dhamma Nudhamma Patipatiya Sankang Pujemi Adai Maya Patipatia Jati Jaravia di Maranamha Parimunchi Sami Sadi Sadi Sadi. And it means I honor or I pay respects to the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, there's each line. And by this practice, in accordance with the Dhamma, truly by this practice, I will be freed from birth, old age, sickness and death. So it's a lovely, uh, uplifting sort of chant. And it also, it brings up the, you know, the idea of the types of offerings we can make to the Buddha. And of course, very commonly, you know, in uh, 
uh, uh, material offerings. This is called uh, usually amisa puja. You know, we offer things like candles, incense, flowers, water, drinks, medicinal drinks, and um, in Sri Lanka particularly, foods and things like that. And uh, when we do this sort of um, uh, offering of material things, it can be a way, for me, I see it as a way of bringing the Buddha into our lives because we're offering it to him and it's like he is here in our home or in our hut, wherever we are, and so we're offering these uh, material things. We know, <laughs> for sure, he doesn't need them <laughs> and uh, he won't be able to eat the food or drink or the water or drink the water. Um, or smell the flowers, the incense and flowers and so on. But, you know, we need to give and give this to the Buddha. And as I say, it brings the Buddha into our lives and it, it brings the Buddha to life in our minds, as it were. And so it can be quite powerful from that sense. I know in the West many people um, don't uh, have much rapport, much appreciation of offering material things but I think it has its value because it can awaken the heart and it can create this joy and as I say it's including the Buddha in our lives so it reminds us of the Buddha and this is a valuable thing but of course the second type of practice is the is uh, the second type of offering this is, this is the practice is offering our practice of the Dhamma this is called Pati Pati uh, Puja so this is offering, you know, our practice of uh, uh, moral of giving. This is dana, sila. Um, this is morality, and bhavana, meditation, developing wholesome states of mind, and of course the wisdom that we develop um, based on our practice. So this is the practice of the noble eightfold path. So this is really what <laughs> what does justice, what honors a Buddha is our practice, or honours any teacher, you know, that if we practice what they've taught us and uh, realise the results, that teacher will be very pleased and gratified at, at the, um, that we have been able to make use of the Dhamma. And I'd like to um, reinforce that point from the a quote from the Buddha, from the Parinibbana Sutta, which is Digi Nikaya 16, the long discourses, number 16. And this is um, the translation. It's by Morris Walsh, so it has a very English feel to it. <laughs> it says, this is what the Buddha says, Ananda, whatever monk, nun, male or female lay follower dwells practicing the Dhamma properly and perfectly fulfills the Dhamma way, he or she honours the Tathagata, reveres and esteems him, and pays him the supreme homage. Therefore, Ananda, this is the training, we will dwell practising the Dhamma properly and perfectly fulfil the Dhamma way. This must be your watchword. This, this is a term for uh, that Morris Walsh used for this is how we should practice. This is usually what the Buddha says. The watchword's quite interesting. But it also, Ajahn Brahm's talk reminded me of um, something that Tenzin Palmo mentions. I, I heard it in a talk um, that she gave somewhere. 
And she said in Tibet they have this, um, this very common devotional practice where they visualize the, uh, carrying the Buddha on their head, on their head, you know, throughout the day and wherever they're going, the Buddha is on their head. But <laughs> maybe it's because she's Westerner, but she kept thinking, my goodness, what happens when I go through these doorways? I'll, I'll hit the Buddha. <laughs> and so she thought, she thought instead, it was much better, much safer anyway for the Buddha to carry him in the heart, which I think is lovely. It's very, very, very nice. And it made me think this is like a, a, a living Buddha shrine within ourselves. And it's also quite a nice way to keep the, remind ourselves of the Buddha and uh, and that way bring some positive energy and also uh, purify the mind at the same time. So you may wonder, how does making offerings to the Buddha um, help our meditation? People may think that, but of course it's fairly obvious that it gives rise to this joy and happiness. We call it piti, piti sukha, which are really necessary ingredients, not only for the meditation for life, but they're the necessary ingredients for samadhi. And this is when the mind comes together in stillness or in one-pointedness. And I'd like to read another quote from the Buddha where he's talking about when we recollect the qualities of the Buddha, but this um, also applies what the result of it of uh, giving, uh, making an offering to the Buddha, also has a similar result to this. So I'll read what the Buddha says about um, Buddha Nusati, recollecting the qualities of the Buddha. It's always good to re remember that this list of uh, nine qualities is really just a, you know, a, a, a concise uh, list of qualities. And as they say in Sri Lanka quite often, the, in one chant I know, it says that uh, um, uh, the Buddha's qualities are anantaguna, so they're limitless. It is true, you can look at them from many different angles. And of course, whatever brings happiness and joy is Buddha Nusati, even if it's not one of these nine qualities. So this is what the Buddha says about um, recollecting the, the nature of a Buddha, not only himself, many other Buddhas before him to least seven. And this is what he says, Here, Mahanama, a noble disciple, recollects the Tathagata thus, that's the Buddha, the Blessed One is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct, fortunate, knower of the world's world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, teacher of devas and humans, the awakened one, the blessed one. And then he talks about the result. So this is the uh, classic recollection of the Buddha. And then the Buddha talks about the result of recollecting the Buddha, the effect it has on the mind, because this is what the Buddha is really interested in. And when a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata, on that occasion, their mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred and, or delusion. On that occasion, their mind is simply straight, based on the Tathagata. And a noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma, 
and when they are joyful, rapture arises. And for one with a rapturous mind, the body becomes tranquil. And for one, one who is tranquil in body feels happiness or pleasure. And for one feeling happiness or pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated, it says here, but Ajahn Brahm would say one-pointed, or he'd say uh, still. This is called a noble disciple who dwells in balance amid an unbalanced population, who dwells unafflicted amid an inflicted population, one who has entered the stream of Dhamma. They develop the recollection of the Buddha. And just a few comments that when he says that uh, their uh, their minds are straight, it says straight there, they're straight because they're not distorted due to the defilements um, the un- and the unwholesome roots in particular of mentioned greed, hatred and delusion, or lust, hatred and delusion. The five hindrances are also gone because that's when the meditation can really take off when uh, go very deep and when wisdom can arise. And the unbalanced population he talks about, that's the unenlightened person. You know, this is a person, this this is most people's experience, they're unbalanced by the defilements and their minds are always going up and down with moods driven by defilements, sometimes elated and happy, sometimes down and depressed, sometimes angry, sometimes uh, envious, sometimes jealous, all these things, you know, pushing the mind around and not giving a sense of balance or stability. And it's also a mind that doesn't understand the Dhamma, is not seeing things as they truly are. And an afflicted population, this is Bhikkhu Bodhi's word for, really for suffering, you know, suffering due to our defilements. And it's very... (laughs) <laughs> Very important to see that really these defilements torture us. They're not friends, and we need not identify with them as being us, <laughs> the anger, uh, hatred, or whatever it is. And enter the stream, and of course this is pointing to the fact that Mahanama, who he was talking, the Buddha was talking with, uh, was at least a stream enterer, a sotapanna uh, in Sinhala, so one which is the first stage of awakening. So it's somebody at that stage or above. There's another sutta that's, uh, where the Buddha actually talks about these recollections, uh, only the six recollections in this sutta. And it has a different, a slightly different um, uh, ending to it. So it has the section where it says, when a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata, on that occasion their mind is not obsessed by lust, hatred or delusion. On that occasion, their mind is simply straight. And this is the extra bit in this sutta. And it says, They have departed from greed, freed themselves from it, emerged from it. Greed, monks, is a designation for the five objects of sensual pleasure. Having made this a basis, some beings here are purified in such a way. So this is... Um, when he, the Buddha is talking about greed as a designation for five, the five objects of sensual pleasure. And it's pointing to the fact that usually, where are we looking for our happiness? Out there, through the senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching. And 
in meditation, we're looking for that inner happiness. And particularly in deep meditation, such as jhana, the five senses, the experience of the five senses, the objects of the five senses, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and uh, sounds, um, are completely gone. But we're experiencing, the person who is in deep meditation is experiencing an incredible joy and happiness, which is not, uh, is far superior to anything one could get through the senses. So that's a, uh, a part of what the Buddha is talking about. And here, beings here are purified in such a way, purified in the sense that those uh, negative, negative roots in the mind, lust, hatred and delusion, are no longer there. They're freed from greed, they're freed from hatred, and freed from delusion, albeit usually temporarily. Unless, you know, their meditation empowers their mind, then they develop insight, and then uh, become fully awakened or fully enlightened, and that by that means, you know, destroy the uh, negative states permanently. So when we um, uh, can visualize making an offering to the Buddha of our practice, um, we develop some emotions that are very useful in in our lives, but in the meditation in particular, and the. Foremost one, of course, that comes up, and I mentioned it with Ajahn Brahm's own experience, that uh, is gratitude and th or thanks to the Buddha for all that he's given us. And uh, also a sense of joy comes with it, and a sense of respect for the Buddha too. And for and this is an, this is an emotion too, respect is an emotion. And also faith comes up with it, and that can lead us into a sense of refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. And as uh, I mentioned too, Fajan Brahm, inspiration can come up. And for, for also peace, can an emotion of peace can come up, and a feeling of safety and security. And so, you know, when we, um, when we make an offering to the, to the Buddha or a teacher that's very important for us, has made a big impact on our practice, our understanding of life, um, we feel gratitude for them. And of course, the, the Buddha is, uh, <laughs> is the foremost, in a sense, teacher. He is our teacher, all Buddhists' teacher. And the teachers they have in this life are... are like assistant teachers, as they say in the Goenka, <laughs> Goenka system a technique. But they, in Sri Lanka they call the, the Buddha, uh, like they liken him to a father, they say Pihan Wahanase. So this is like a venerable father. They have a similar one in Thailand, I think. And it reminds, us of, reminds, us, reminds me of what the Buddha said about our parents, that, that they feed us and bring us up and show us the world. And so the Buddha, in a sense, feeds us with the Dhamma, and the Dhamma gives us purpose and meaning in our lives and provides a framework for understanding life and uh, directly experiencing the wisdom, uh, the understanding that the Buddha is pointing to, coming from right view. And of course, most importantly, it reduces our difficulties and problems in life, dukkha, and gives rise to joy. So joy is one of the big things that one one can get. And just from the act of giving, giving is a great way to bring joy and happiness to the mind, especially if it is wholehearted, 
and it's pure. When I say pure, we're not expecting something back. And when it's like that, then it can give rise to this uh, great joy for us. And so any type of giving can do that. But when we think of giving to the Buddha, offering to the Buddha, it's even deeper. You know, we can get a lot of happiness and joy from it. And of course, you know, when we um, give something to the Buddha or offer something to the Buddha, it brings to mind the qualities of the Buddha as well. And and of course, the, 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 the most outstanding quality is that he is our best Kalyanamitta, our best spiritual friend. So that's a really something that brings up a lot of gratitude and brings up a lot of joy. And also respect comes up because, oh, for me it does, you know. And respect is another beautiful emotion. And it's really interesting that uh, before the, when the Buddha became uh, enlightened, soon after it actually he awakened and he, he reflected what can I respect? What can I look up to? And the answer came. He, he saw actually in the world there was nobody that had experienced what he had experienced, understood what he had understood, nobody living um, that had that experience. But then the answer came to him, what can I respect? The Dhamma. And that's what he he respected. So if a Buddha needs something to respect... <laughs> How we even, we need the respect even more to be able to find something that we can respect, and it gives rise when we have this respect to um, a faith, uh, and it gives rise to a sense of refuge too, which brings up this joy and happiness, piti sukha, and we all need, as I mentioned with the Buddha, we all need things to look up to, and the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha are noble or supreme or highest qualities in the world. It's always uh, important to point out that these are, not, uh, these are not worldly qualities and, of course, they are all in, coming from enlightened qualities. So we talk about the Buddha as an enlightened being, his teaching, teaching as being a reflection of reality. And the Sangha we talk about is those that have become awakened or enlightened. And when, as Ayakima said, when you take refuge in the highest, it can't let you down. <laughs> it can't let you down. So, so these are very important. Refuges are a very important thing in difficult times. And I often uh, encourage people going through operations or getting close to, to death you know, to remember the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, to give themselves some strength and some comfort and stability to the mind. So I think that's enough about the um, talking about making an offering to the Buddha. Mm -hmm. And now we can do a guided meditation for uh, about 40, 45 minutes. And so we can um, find a a good posture for us, however that is, you know, sitting on a chair or sitting on a cushion on the floor, These are very whatever we find comfortable. Some people might like to stand or walk up and down, that's possible, walking meditation. Whatever um, is, is suits you for making the mind peaceful, allowing the mind to become peaceful and settle down. So now we can close our eyes. It's always good and get in contact with the present moment. 
just as it is, wherever you are at this moment. And we can uh, visualize letting go of the past by thinking of having a helium balloon, you know, one of these balloons with a gas in them, in your left hand. And this is the past. And we can let it go fly, and let it fly up to the sky. And then we can think or visualize having a helium-filled balloon in the right hand. And this is the future. And we can let go of it, the balloon, and let go of the future. Let it float away for the time being. We're letting go of them for the time of the meditation. And so we can, now we can just be aware of how the body is. Oftentimes we're not. And we can just see what it needs to uh, make it comfortable. The any adjustment that we need to make. Checking that, say, the head is over the shoulders, nice and balanced. And the shoulders are balanced over the hips. And moving the body to let go, to relieve, uh, to release any tensions in the shoulders particularly and in the neck. So just getting in touch with our bodies and making those adjustments. And now we can relax the body mentally. This is a very important part of the meditation. It has quite an effect. And we can start at the top of the head and the back of the head, the side of the head. And give this area, this warm, kind, a relaxing attention, soothing attention. Now we can move the attention down to the forehead and give, relax that, soothe that, give it a mental massage. And then we can move our attention to the, around the eyes and relax them, soothe them. And then relaxing, soothing the cheeks of the face and down to the mouth, all around the mouth and the chin, soothing this area, allowing it to relax. It does a lot of work, the mouth particularly. Now moving our attention to the neck, all around the neck, and giving it a good mental massage. 
Now bringing to mind the right shoulder, starting at the neck. We can move our attention along the right shoulder, relaxing it, soothing it, massaging it with our minds. Now bringing to mind the right arm, starting at the top of the right arm and slowly moving our attention down the right arm to include the elbow, the wrist, the hand and fingers, just soothing them, giving them this warm, kind attention, the right arm. Now bringing to mind the left shoulder, starting at the neck and moving our attention along the left shoulder to soothe it, relax it, let go of any tension and strain, any burden that it's carrying. Now bringing to mind the left arm, starting at the top of the left arm and moving our attention down the left arm all around to include the elbow, the wrist, the hand and the fingers of the left arm. Soothing them, relaxing, giving the left arm this mental massage.
Now bringing to mind the back, starting just below the shoulders and moving our attention down the back, giving it this warm, kind attention, soothing any sore areas, relaxing, massaging, letting go of any painful sore areas in the back, moving our attention slowly down the back. And now we can bring to mind the front of the body, starting just below the shoulders and moving our attention down the front of the body to include the chest, the diaphragm, the stomach and the abdomen area below it, giving it this mental massage, giving this warmth and kindness to any tense areas that are tense or painful or where we feel pressure, just relaxing them, giving them this kind attention. Now bringing to mind the right leg, starting at the top of the right leg and moving our attention down the right leg, all around it to include uh, the knee, the ankle, the foot and the toes of the right leg, soothing the leg, relaxing it, giving it a mental massage.
bringing to mind the left leg and starting at the top of the left leg and moving our attention down the left leg all around it to include the knee, the ankle, the foot and the toes of the left leg, giving it this warm, kind, accepting, relaxing attention. now we can bring to mind the whole body just sitting here in the present moment, just experiencing it. And we can have an intention or bring to mind an intention to arouse a wholesome or positive feeling from making an offering to the Buddha. And we can visualize the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, probably not long after his enlightenment, not far from the Niranjara a river. We can picture this river and the Bodhi tree, very cool, secluded, quiet place. Not like today, the uh, Sri Mahabodhi temple. And we can see the Buddha sitting under the tree, meditating under the Bodhi tree, meditating with a very peaceful face and a smile of in, inner contentment. And in our minds, we can approach the, the, the Lord Buddha and the Bodhi tree and bow down to him three times. And we can sit down for meditation, not far from the Buddha. And we can bring to mind that we offer the Lord Buddha our meditation, every moment of awareness during our meditation, every breath, in and out breath, we can offer to the Buddha as we meditate. And we can just allow a space for 
a feeling or a response to arise. And we can fill our body and minds with this feeling. Maybe it's a feeling of joy, of uh, gratitude or thanks, or of faith or respect. Maybe inspiration, just being uplifted. And we can breathe this feeling in, this feeling of joy or gratitude, whatever feeling it is. Breathe it in and breathe it out. And for those who like a mantra, we can use sadhu, something like sadhu, which means well done. Just breathing in this feeling, breathing out this feeling, offering each breath to the Buddha, each moment of mindfulness to the Buddha. And if the feeling you're experiencing reduces, just to bring to mind again, offering your meditation, your practice to the Lord Buddha. And that can bring up the feeling again.
And now, as we're getting close to the end of the meditation, we can share this feeling of the meditation, radiate it to what we've experienced, whatever that feeling be, whether it be joy, thanks, inspiration, faith, whatever, or peace. And we can share it with everyone who's listening to this guided meditation. And now we can radiate that feeling in ever-widening circles around where we are at this moment to include all the human beings, all the animals and insects, all the unseen beings, all beings sharing this feeling that we have experienced in the meditation and wishing that they may experience this joy, gratitude, inspiration, peace, faith, whatever. And we can keep expanding this feeling, radiating this feeling, to cover the entire earth, just slowly, ever-widening circles, cover more and more area, cover the whole earth, all the human beings, all the animals, insects, birds, all the unseen beings, sharing this feeling we've experienced. And we can expand this feeling further and further to cover all the worlds outside this planet, all the realms of existence, all the beings that live in those other worlds, other realms of existence, sharing this feeling of joy or gratitude or thanks, of peace, of faith, whatever it is with them.
And now we can just look back on what we experienced in the meditation and just ask ourselves how we feel now. Is it different from when we began? And were we able to get in touch with this joy, this uh, thanks, appreciation, arising from giving a gift or making an offering of our meditation to the Buddha? And we can ask ourselves, what caused these feelings to arise? What triggered them? And we can make the aspiration to Keep the Buddha in mind. Keep him, the Lord Buddha, in our hearts like a living shrine within. Then uh, we can remember him at any time. I mean, get in contact with the feeling, with feelings we've experienced, whether it be joy, thanks, respect, faith, or inspiration. So now we can come out of the meditation slowly, opening our eyes and moving our bodies. Oh, that's very good. That new bell was very clear and <laughs> very resonant, really good. So I hope uh, you found uh, that useful, that uh, you could, you got some uh, feeling, positive feeling, wholesome feeling coming up of joy or thanks, respect whatever it was. And these are uh, emotions that can enrich our lives, enrich our meditation, and empower our meditations. And of course, we, we can offer them not only to the Buddha, but to our teachers. And of course, Ajahn Brahm was thinking of, he was sometimes offering it to Ajahn Chah, his teacher. And of course, uh, we can remember that uh, on Saturday was his the memorial day for the 29th anniversary of the passing away of Ajahn Chah. So when we 
we can bring to mind teachers we've known in this life and we can offer it uh, our meditation our mindfulness moment by moment mindfulness and uh, the each breath of our meditation if we're doing breathing meditation to our teacher knowing that they would be very happy very pleased that we're practicing a meditation and finding use in some of the guidance that we received so now is a time for comments questions or complaints so we'll see and i'll ask uh, venerable santa who's uh, organizing the running the the live streaming this evening thank you very much thank you ajahn right now we have around 15 minutes and yep. we have four questions all right good good Mm. So the first question, I'm scared to excuse myself because I may take it for granted and not correct myself. How to deal with this, Ajahn? Um, I'm not to excuse yourself, but because you're afraid that you won't correct yourself. I think um, this... <laughs> doesn't sound very kind to me actually it doesn't sound I spoke about kindness yesterday um, because really you know that's kindness is what actually enables us to change more you know often when we're correcting ourselves as it were or someone else is correcting us we can feel a resistance to it uh, we can feel maybe intimidated depending on how the person or how we you know uh, um, uh, we talk to ourselves, you know. So it's uh, very important to to use kindness really to to develop and not to worry uh, too much that we won't correct ourselves. It will happen because we've got the Buddha's teaching to remind us. It's like a conditioning in our minds, and we don't have to. Uh, if we've listened to the Buddha's teaching, that will come up and remind us, you know, to, um, I don't know about correcting ourselves, but uh, um, developing our practice, you know, developing the positive aspects of our practice. So I think that's a, that's a good way. Kindness is always, <laughs> always the best because... Uh, Correcting ourselves, I don't know. You know, we do our best. We do our best. So we do. You do feel, you know, correcting. You do sometimes. You feel things. You're out of, you know, things are not going the way you think they should go. But it's at those times, you know, that we disappointed with the meditation, or we feel like we've been uh, very distracted. Uh, then to have kindness for that feeling of disappointment, of frustration. Um, you know that we have been you know distracted or whatever and uh, that is very important uh, in the meditation and when we do that it actually allows the mind to settle down sometimes when we are correcting ourselves we're adding a bit of energy to the instability of the mind and this uh, kindness can actually the kindness to the distraction or the emotion we're feeling, if it may be anger or, or um, irritation, whatever it is, um, then it can subside. So that's what I would suggest to you. You know, kindness, always a good thing. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you, Ajahn. The next question, 
Could you please explain more about the relationship between piti, sukha, and samadhi? Did you say that piti and sukha are necessary for sama samadhi? Yes, absolutely. That's a, I think this person knows, you know, the, probably the Buddhist teachings quite well because piti sukha, you know, is uh, this joy and happiness is is an ingredient that is required um, for samadhi to arise. And in that sequence that I mentioned, uh, uh, that the, I quoted from the Buddha, um, he mentions that that whole relationship of how this arises. And uh, it goes from, I'll just read that little bit, that um, here we are, that uh, a noble disciple whose mind is straight gains inspiration in the meaning. So this is this sort of feeling of inspiration, gains um, uh, inspiration in the meaning, gains inspiration in the Dhamma, gains joy connected with the Dhamma, all very similar ways of saying joy is coming up. And this is usually... uh, this is uh, actually it's not piti. This is more like a feeling of gladness, and uh, the joyful feeling is more like a gladness, which is called pamuja, in Pali. And then it gives rise to this feeling of rapture, piti, which can be experienced in the body, as it does. Uh, it can feel very, you know, sort of physical, you know, over like uh, feelings in the body, um, uh, waves of. Uh, of energy going through the body, tingling in the body. It can be many things, actually. But you know that, generally speaking, (laughs) when you're conscious, you don't experience things like this. So you know it's coming from the mind. Then when one's mind has this uh, piety in it, then the body becomes tranquil. This means... Uh, usually that we become the body settles down so it is no longer demanding attention like a child really can sometimes demand attention and so it can disappear in a sense and that disappearance that tranquilizing of the body is like happiness brings happiness with it and people that have these out of body experiences that's what they feel they've they feel like it's a burden that they have let let go of, and then when they come back into the body, they often feel it's very heavy. Um, so this is tranquility, this pasadi, is this feeling of letting go of the body in the five senses. And when one lets go of the body in the five senses, then the mind is going within itself, and it's going to the source of happiness. The things out there in the world, haven't got happiness in them <laughs> and then giving us happiness is coming from inside us this this happiness and when we have this uh, happiness this um, uh, sukha in the mind then the mind stays with it and this is what creates the stability and the one-pointedness of the mind because it's happy to be here. It doesn't want to go anywhere else. When you're having a good time, why go anywhere else? And so so the mind can be, you know, really, it's the glue, we sometimes say, for samadhi. It glues the mind to this sort of experience of happiness and joy. So this is, this is how, you know, that it really works. And so we need this happiness in joy and happiness in the mind for samadhi to arise, but we need it in our lives too. 
If we don't have joy and happiness in our lives from an inner source, we start looking for it from an outer source. <laughs> we start looking at Netflix, we start looking at alcohol, drugs, we start looking for relationships, we start looking for all manner of things to find some happiness for the mind. So that's the um, uh, understanding of how, you know, Piti Sukha arises and how necessary it is. And this uh, sequence that you see that I've mentioned is actually the same as the factors of awakening or the factors of enlightenment, seven factors of enlightenment. They, they are very much the same um, qualities that the Buddha is talking about, mindfulness, investigation of, of the mind, the, whether the qualities in the mind are unwholesome, giving rise to energy, giving rise to joy, giving rise to tranquility, pasadi, giving rise to samadhi. They miss out that happiness there, but it's a, the happiness is implied. And then from samadhi, getting developing upeka, or as I call it, acceptance, this looking on of the mind where wisdom can develop. So you see this sequence over and over again in the Buddha's teaching. So thank you for that question. So the next one. Next one. While practicing Brahma Viharas, yes, I good. feel egoistic because the feeling that I have a better mind than others to do that. <laughs> How to overcome this? Wow. Please help. Right, right. Well, one, one way to overcome it, and the Buddha was always pointing it out to, to, to monks, whatever we take in an egoistic way, you know, taking to be, well, I'm, I'm better than others because I have this state of mind, you know, I have this experience, whether it be because of, um, you know, one's morality, you know, we, we practice morality very well, and we can feel we're superior to others who haven't got such good morality. But the Buddha said this is a defilement. This is um, uh, staining the experience of the of our morality, or our uh, meditation, or our insight. So it's it's a stain or a defilement on you know the Brahma Viharas, because you know when we. When we develop uh, loving kindness or friendliness, when we develop karuna, when we develop um, joy for others' success or good qualities, when we develop equanimity or acceptance for other beings, it's all beings, isn't it? It's all beings. So there's no room for looking down on these poor things <laughs> that are not experiencing this state of mind, um, you know, because then that, that state of mind is is not one of, um, it's not completely friendly, it's not complete, completely compassionate, it's not completely joyful, it's not completely accepting. So just seeing the disadvantages in it, and it's actually reducing the intensity of that feeling of loving kindness or friendliness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And uh, so this is a way that we can, um, you know, overcome that, overcome that quality. So thank you for that. I hope that answered that. Yep. Interesting. Yep. There are two more questions. Mm. Okay. A common idea of giving is to give what others want, not what you can give best. 
Do you think that Buddha's giving is the later one? Uh, not giving what? Giving what others want? Not what you can give best. Right. The giving, giving, um, you know, when we develop it as a spiritual quality, it's not dependent on what we're giving at all. It doesn't matter what we're giving. It's how we're giving that's the important thing. Um, very often there can be, a, as it were, a defilement of giving uh, by worrying that what we're giving, do they need this? Do they want this? Is it the right color or, you know, the right model or whatever it is? So this idea of giving um, what people want, it's nice to give what people want or, you know, you know that they would appreciate it or they need it. That's lovely. It is a good thing to do. But not let that, um, you know, reduce the happiness you can experience from giving you know just to give wholeheartedly is is all is what we can do and uh, that is that is uh, in a spiritual sense that's the point of giving is to develop this uh, this quality this happiness and also to help beings in whatever way we can giving materially giving dhamma and so on so not to, uh, yes, I think the what we're giving, it doesn't matter so much. But how we're giving, yes, that's important. <laughs> so thank you for that. Okay, Ajahn, this is the last question. Yeah. Ajahn, my wife and I are married by Theravada Buddha, mm -hmm. but are having trouble getting my wife home to Australia. It has been a long time someone eight years since we have been together wow that's a long time so how to go on right right yes that is a long time to be separated you know but of course if you keep each other in your hearts you know using loving kindness you can feel a sense of connection of course until you're able to meet again um, and what and also of course modern communication you can <laughs> you can talk to each other on the phone or or through whatsapp or through skype those sorts of things so the the thing uh, that uh, one would need to do may be helpful is to create some good karma that will enable it to happen too you know we've got covid19 at the moment so that's difficult as well but um to also do good karma thinking you know may this um may we be reunited after eight years that's a long time so these are things that could be helpful and so i'd like to just offer that to you and also there's one more question on jhana isn't it I think we've got one on Diana. The that, one uh, from yes, yesterday. From yesterday, yes. Mm, that, sure. What's that? What can most easily throw us out of Jhana state? Wow, fantastic if you're in a Jhana state. That's good. You'll know what's throwing you out of it. <laughs> so, so you, but usually the Buddhist talks about thorns, doesn't he, that, that, that take people out of Jhana. And a thorn pierces the flesh, and these things pierce the Jhana. So first jhana, the thorn is sound, a loud sound. It has to be very loud sound because the five senses are pretty much disconnected. So a loud sound nearby 
will do that. For second jhana, the Buddha said that vitaka vichara will pull us out of that state. And that means sometimes uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, I think, is calling it applied thought, uh, initial thought and sustained thought. But I prefer uh, Venerable Nyanamoli's translation, applied application of mind, the mind going towards the object and the mind sustaining the object, staying with the object, sustaining it, sustained application of mind. So that's the second jhana. And the third jhana, the third jhana, the, um, the thorn for third jhana is joy. Joy is the, the thorn for third jhana, as remember, fourth jhana. The happiness, that is a thorn for it, because in this equanimity and mindfulness, which is, has this incredible stability and peace and power and, in a sense, happiness with it. Uh, so they're the, the thorns for the four jhanas, and then there are thorns for the immaterial attainments, they're sometimes called the arupa jhanas as well. So they have different thorns as well. So that's the they're the main ones. But sound is a, is quite a is one for the first first jhana. Loud sound, very close sound, would bring somebody out of first jhana. So. If you're having jhana, fantastic. That's great. Don't worry about these thorns too much. <laughs> That's really good. If you get into second jhana, sound won't bother you at all. If you get into third jhana, vitaka and vichara won't bother you at all. If you get into fourth jhana, um, uh, happiness won't bother you at all. So wonderful. That's great. So I'd like to finish off, as I usually do, with paying respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha by, through the chanting, because this is um, on, uh, this is, you're listening to this. So you're welcome to join in if you wish. Arahang Sama Sambundo Bhagawa Bunhang Bhagavantang Abhiwade Swagato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supatipano Bhagavato Sāvaka Sanko Sankang Namami Sadhu 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 Thank you for listening and I hope you've found this useful this evening.